Hey, good morning. Great to see you again. Uh, welcome. Uh, welcome to Church Rocky Peak, especially if this is your very first time. Uh, my name is Pastor Mike, and uh, we're in the midst of a series right now called The Way. And if you'll open up to your uh, program, there's a white message note sheet in there to help you take notes, uh, follow along the time of teaching. So I encourage you to take that out. We use one of those every week. Wasn't it great seeing those kids? It's just so great. This is awesome. So uh, I'm excited about what God's doing over there in Uganda through uh, Peter and their, their leadership team over there. Hey, let's, uh, let's pray together, and then we'll launch in. Father, we are excited to be part of what you're doing in this whole world, this worldwide movement that you call the kingdom of God. And uh, God, we're excited about Uganda. We're excited about what you're doing here. And today, Lord, we come with expectancy. We come to your word with a hunger. We come, we just really want to be taught by you, and so we we pray as we come and sit around your feet that your spirit would come and do what only he can do, which is take this message and tailor it to each of our needs. So the time we leave, we know we've all been heard from you personally, individually, our name on it. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, not really sure why he was at the temple that day. Uh, he's not a temple-going sort of guy. Uh, he'd grown up in Israel. He's a Jew. And so like all the other kids, he'd been raised in the Old Testament stories. But early on in life, he, he decided to kick the traces. And so when this opportunity came to work for the Romans, um, he jumped at it. It was, uh, it was a job collecting taxes. It wasn't popular with his uh, friends, you know, working for the enemy, ripping them off. Um, and it, it didn't put him in good social stead in his country because spiritually, tax collectors were seen as the lowest of the low. But uh, the pay was awesome, opportunity was unlimited, and so he jumped at it. And so he, he, he became a tax collector. And so it's kind of weird, really, that as the story opens up today, he's, he's out there at the temple courts in Jerusalem. It's not where you'd normally expect to see him. Obviously, something's going on in his life. It turns out that there's been some sort of a spiritual breakthrough. We're not sure exactly why it happened or or how it happened, but that day he was feeling for the first time in a long time just a hunger for God in his life, and uh, he was waking up. A part of him was waking up that he thought he'd killed a long time ago, and for the first time in a long time, he was realizing the pain he'd caused others, the, the, the cost of his life choices, that he was a man on a mission. He was there in search of forgiveness. He was there in search of a fresh start. He wasn't even sure it was possible. So when he came to the huge temple courts that day, he didn't even go near the temple. He's afraid he'd get struck with lightning. Kind of stood way at the back, and when it came time to pray, he didn't even look up to heaven like, like most Jews would do in that day. He just put his head down, and as he began to pray, as he began to speak, it was like the spiritual dams broke inside of him. All the years, all the the pain, all the rebellion, all the people he'd hurt, all the people he'd ripped off, the poor choices he'd made. His whole life was before his eyes, and as he, he begins to pray. It's like this dam breaks, and his heart just breaks, and all he can get out, the only words he can get out is, God, will you, will you forgive me? I'm a failure. Well, the interesting thing was, on the other side of the complex that day, big complex, there's another man, a very different story. He, too, had been raised in Israel. He, too, was a Jew. He, too, had been raised on the stories of the Old Testament. But unlike man number one, he'd taken them seriously his whole life. From the time he was a little boy, he had a love for, his word, for the Word. And when he grew up, he decided to, to join this group of spiritual elites in Israel, kind of the spiritual seals of the nation. They were called the Pharisees. There's only about 6,000 of them, but they not only took the Bible seriously, I mean, they, took, they had all their own rules to make up just to make sure they didn't break any of the Bible rules. 
And so as he was there that day, he came to pray too, but his prayer was very different. He, he was just thankful. He was thankful he hadn't made the mistake others had made. I mean, he, he had never really gotten off the track. He'd taken the moral high road in his life. Uh, he had never really robbed anyone. He'd never cheated on his wife. Uh, he'd never done anything really big and bad wrong. And so he had even thrown himself into seeking God in pretty profound ways. Like he, he tithed off his income, like the Bible said. And on top of that, he would fast two days every week, every Monday, every Thursday, seeking God in prayer and fasting. So man, he, he'd really accumulated in his own mind a pretty big success sheet in terms of his spiritual life. And he's feeling pretty good about it. And so as he's praying that day, he's, he's starting to pray. And in the middle of his prayer, he looks up and he sees his tax collector over at the far distance. He recognizes him and he's saying, man, that's weird that he's here. Why would he be here of all people? And so as he's closing up his prayer, he just kind of thanks God that he's not like that guy. You know, thank, thank God that I haven't gone down and made the mistakes he made. Today we're, uh, we're, we're closing or we're finishing, not closing or finishing, we're not even close to closing or finishing. We are continuing. We're continuing <laughs> the series uh, in the way. And uh, if you're new here, let me just bring you up to speed. Uh, it's a series that we're studying the life and the teaching of the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest spiritual leaders and thinkers of all time, but most amazingly, just an amazing Christ follower. And what we're doing is every week we're, we're kind of sitting up uh, alongside of him and letting him mentor us. And what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be part of this ancient movement that Jesus launched called The Way? And so every week, the plan is pretty simple. We, we start off by taking a look at a passage in one of his longest and most famous letters, his letter to the Romans. And then we use that as a launching off place to look at some of his other letters, other things about his life where he can mentor us. So today, if you have your Bibles, we're in Romans 2, obviously a long way from finishing. So if you have your Bibles, go to Romans 2. And uh, if you've been with us in this series... You know, the Paul is actually, in these first couple chapters, he's bringing an indictment against the human race. Kind of picture a courtroom. And so the first four chapters of Romans, we're breaking it down and calling it a mini-series. And we're calling it Fallen and Forgiven. And the reason is because in these first four chapters, Paul basically sums up the story of the human race and how we fell away from God, what God's done to bring us back and, and so we can be forgiven. So it's Fallen and Forgiven. Well, the first couple of chapters, Paul is bringing this, this court case, this indictment against the human race. And so in chapter 1, he brings his case, the court case, against what we've been calling the wild children of the race, the wild kids. Uh, you know, the, the, the type of person, maybe you are that kind of person or were that kind of person that you kind of, you know it's right, you know it's wrong, you just don't care, you're going to do your own thing. And, and so much like the tax collector in the opening story, he just lived his life doing his own thing. And so in Romans 1, Paul had kind of talked to this kind of a person. And in Paul's day, it was best represented by the kind of the, uh, the, the pagan nations of his day. You know, they threw themselves into idolatry and immorality, sexual morality, and so on. So that's chapter 1. Well, in chapter 2, he's going to talk to a different type of person. I'm calling them the good kids of the world. These are the kids, maybe you're one of them, uh, maybe you're once one of them, maybe you wish you were one of them, <laughs> but uh, you, you're, these are the kids that they grow up and for whatever reason, maybe it's because of uh, uh, kind of some sort of secular philosophy, maybe it's because it's the way they're raised, maybe it's because of uh, some sort of religion that they're part of, 
But they made a decision that they want to take the moral high road in life. They want to live by a higher standard, much like the Pharisee we started the story of the day with. And what Paul's going to say is, though, uh, on the outside, they may look better from a distance, and inside, they're equally as fallen. It just shows up in different ways. And the way fallenness shows up in the good kids of the race is a couple ways. One is, is that we tend to say one thing. We embrace a certain value system. This is what we believe in. This is the high road. We take the high road. We endorse it. But we don't really live up to it. And so we fall short. So we, we, we say it, but we don't do it. The other way, though, is that we tend to, um, we, we tend to be very selective in terms of what it lives means to do the high road. So we'll focus on certain kinds of blatant sins that kind of, the, we might call them sins of the flesh, like the immorality or the, uh, the idolatry, but we will kind of ignore what we'll be calling today the sins of the heart, things like greed and envy. And so what we do when we're on the high road is because we're not really living up, we kind of ignore those parts of our life that are really off track, the sins of the heart, and we focus on the sins of the flesh that we're not committing, and so now we feel much superior. And so this is how fallenness looks to people who take the high road. Now, before we jump into chapter 2 and see what Paul says, I need to talk a little bit about his teaching style in this chapter. Um, and what you need to do is, uh, remember, Paul was an experienced teacher. By the time we get the letter of Romans, he's been teaching the message of Jesus for over 20 years in all kinds of different settings. And so he can pretty much predict when he's teaching, what are the wild kids going to say? What are the, uh, the high roaders, what are they going to say? What are his own race, the Jewish people, are going to say? He's pretty much got this wired. And so what he's going to do in this passage is he's going to have a dialogue, a kind of a fictional dialogue with some of his critics. Because he knows, whenever he teaches, he kind of knows what the objections are going to be. He knows what the questions of different groups. So let's, let's picture, let's, let's say like we're, like I will say I'm the Apostle Paul. I know it's a stretch, but just kind of like go with me here. <laughs> Like, just, just for the moment, it feels really good to me. Like, um, so let's say that I'm like the Apostle Paul, and you're like the crowd he's teaching, okay? And so, so, so he knows, okay, you're the wild kids over here, all right? And so he kind of knows what your issues are. And, uh, and you're right here in the middle. Uh, you're, you're more of the high roaders you're, for secular reasons or whatever. You're on the high road. And over here, you're the Jewish people that he grew up with, all right? And so what he's going to do is as he's teaching, he always has these three groups in mind. And so while he's addressing one, he kind of knows what's happening over here. So while he's talking to you low roaders in chapter one about how mess, low roaders, yeah, 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 okay, not low riders, low roaders, okay. So he's talking to you low roaders over here about your immorality, your idolatry and all. He knows that these two groups right here, you're going to be going like, you go for it, Paul, good job, let them have it. They're on the low road. They're messed up people. They're the druggies. They're the immoral people. They're the partiers. They're the ripoff artists. You know, they're the politician. Oh, just whatever. <laughs> uh, so they're, they're, those are those people. You go for it. And so what Paul's going to do in chapter 1, he's been talking to this group. Now in chapter 2, he's going to go, okay, it's time for you all right here. I need to talk to you. Okay, so he's going to address you. And he's going to use an ancient technique that philosophers would use in his day called a diatribe. Now, how many, you've heard that word, right, diatribe? It usually means like when you go off on somebody, right? Like, oh, he just went off. It was like a diatribe. Well, in that day, a diatribe was actually an official, it was kind of a technical way of teaching. What would happen if you're writing a letter, you would kind of have an imaginary conversation with your opponents. 
And so you would kind of talk to them in this imaginary conversation, and you would let them bring up their objections to what you were teaching, and you would answer their objections. And so the rest of us were reading the letter. We can kind of follow like, oh, I get it. This is how this teaching works out. And so the philosophers would do that. Well, so Paul's going to use that ancient method of teaching called the diatribe, and we'll see it here. He's actually going to, he's going to pick out people in the crowd. He's been talking over here in chapter 1. Now he's going to say, okay, okay no, 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 talk, let me talk to you now. Right? And he's going to have this conversation with the high roaders in chapter, the first half of chapter 2. So let's take our Bibles, and let's go to chapter 2 and verse uh, 1. And we're going to go through the first half of this chapter. And the next time we're together, we'll do the uh, second half, which will be indictment part three, moving towards the verdict in chapter three of uh, this uh, courtroom scene. Okay, so chapter two, verse one. So you, therefore, have no excuse. Now notice it says you, therefore. You see, he's, he's, we're, we're doing a diatribe. He's no longer just talking in general, like chapter one, he's saying you. So he picks out someone in the crowd, and he's like, yeah, you go get them. They're all messed up over there. And he's no way saying you, you right there. You moral high roaders, you therefore have no excuse. Uh-oh, this is not going well. I feel really bad for you people right here in the middle, right here. You're off the hook now, you're already condemned. <laughs> next time we meet, you're in big trouble over here. In fact, next time you might want to sit in a different part of the room. <laughs> but today, it's all about you, Okay. <laughs> You said, well, hey, that's the way it should be. All right. So it says, you, therefore, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. Okay, so you all people here, you've been looking over there and go, yeah, that's right. But in fact, both these sections, we look at, you're right. This is really wrong what you're doing. You deserve everything you're getting from God. He says, uh-oh, but you have no excuse, you middle section people here. For at whatever point you judge the other you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Okay, th here's the problem. The problem with, if with us as a human race, is even when we take the high road in life, we're going to mess it up. Because it's one thing to take the high road, it's another thing to really, to endorse the high road, to embrace the high road, to teach the high road. It's another thing to do the high road. So what does he mean that you do the same things? Well, I think there's a couple things he's aiming at. Sometimes people on the high road are just flat-out blatant hypocrites, right? We've, we've known people like this, people that, uh, you know, that they claim to be a Christian or whatever. They're just living a double life. We've all known people like this. And so maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's a priest, maybe it's a politician. They're on the high road. Their, their whole platform is doing the right thing, integrity, whatever the deal is. And then you find out they're taking money on the side or they're having a sexual affair over here. And, and so we've all, you know, newspapers are always full of that, right? So sometimes it's as blatant as that, high roaders being obvious hypocrites. But other times it's much more subtle. Other times it works like this that we, when we're on the high road, we can begin to get, like I was saying before, very selective in terms of our sin list. So we begin to define the high road by a very selective group of sins. You know, we're not going to party, we're not going to get drunk, we're not going to shoot up, we're not going to sleep around, we're not going to rip people off, we're not going to kill anyone. So we got these certain things. And we begin to define the high road by a very narrow list. But we ignore the list uh, at the end of chapter 1. Uh, I don't know if you remember, you can check this out later, but in chapter 1, Paul called out the wild kids. 
He called you out for immorality. <laughs> he called you out for uh, idolatry. But he also, in the final paragraph, the long list of sins that were, for the most part, sins of the heart. And he said, at least, uh, envy, uh, greed, uh, bitterness, pride, uh, anger, you know, all these kind of hatred, spite, gossip, these kinds of things. So chapter one, yes, it focused on the big step, but it also focused on sins of the heart. And it's like these high roaders, what they do, though, is they defi- we, define, uh, we define our list by a very narrow list of kind of blatant sins of the flesh. We ignore the sins of the heart that are equally, if not more important sometimes. But what this does is because we define maturity by this, in this narrow way, we're able then to see ourselves as mature even when we are blatantly violating everything chapter one taught. You see what's happening here? And so he says, so here's the, this is Paul's problem with the high roaders, is that you may say, take the high road, but you really don't live the high road. You may, you may teach, you talk a good game, but you don't really live it. Okay, so, so he says um, in verse, uh, verse one, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you pass judgment, do the same things. Now, verse 2. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things, the Romans 1 kinds of things, is based on truth. We're all in agreement that those people deserve judgment. So when you, notice he's still talking, having this imaginary conversation. You see, it's this, this is called the diatribe. He's having, so when you, he's talking to him directly, a mere man, you know, you're not God. When you pass judgment or condemn them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? And we'll talk about this more later. But the basic idea is this, is that if we are being honest with ourselves, we, we take the high road, and if we're being honest, we will see these things in our hearts. We will see the greed. We will see the jealousy. We'll see the envy. We'll see the pride. We'll see the lust, right? We'll see it. And so what should happen is when I take the high road in my life, when I start going that road, I should realize pretty quick, wow, I'm really not able to do this. And it should lead me to repentance. It should lead me to calling on God for forgiveness, for grace, for his mercy, But instead, because of our fallenness, we choose to ignore certain truths about ourselves, only embrace other truths about ourselves, what we're not doing, and then we have the nerve to look down at other people while we magnify their sins and minimize our own, you see? And so he says in verse 5, and because of this, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're not willing to change, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, the final judgment. So he says, while you think you're storing up brownie points, you're actually storing up wrath. And so like, go back now, flashback to the Pharisee at the start of the day. God, thank you, I'm not like this other man. He thinks he's storing up brownie points. The reality is he's in for a rude awakening. Now, Verse 6, Paul lays out a very important principle of judgment. When God judges the world, how is he going to judge a person? He says it's very simple. God will give to each person according to what he has done. In other words, in the final judgment, we'll all be judged based on what we have done, not which road we took, not what we believed, not what we taught, not what we endorsed, 
what have we done, will be based on our performance. It's kind of like Nike, just do it, or show me the money, right? It's like no talk, just show me the money. And God's going to be very much that way. The judgment's based, it's not based on anything else, but just show me the money. Like, what have you done? What's your life done? And it says, to those who by persistence in doing good, they seek glory and honor and immortality, then he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth, like in chapter 2, the high roaders are rejecting the truth about the sins of the heart. Uh, And they're following evil, there'll be wrath and anger. There'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Now, here's what's going on. Okay, last week, Romans 1, Paul talked to you. Today, moral high roaders talking to you. Next time, the next message in the series is going to be in the third part of the indictment. He's going to be talking to you, this Jewish nation he came from, right? He's not ready to talk to you yet. That's going to come in verse 17, okay? We're not there yet. But he's, he's firing a shot over the bow. He's establishing a principle here that God judges everyone the same, doesn't matter which road you're on, doesn't matter who your daddy is, even if it's Abraham, right? Doesn't matter whether it's Jew or Gentile, we're all judged the same. And so he's establishing this principle, and he's going to get back to it later. So there'll be, verse 9, there'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, works the same way. But, on the other hand, glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God doesn't show favoritism. There's no favoritism. There's no, it doesn't matter what your background is. It's all going to be the same way. Now, here's the problem. Okay, so, for you Jewish people over here, you're going to have a problem with this. As Paul's teaching, you're saying, wait a second, no favoritism. What are you talking about? We're the chosen race. By definition, you've got favoritism towards us, right? And so what are you saying, Paul? It's sounding like what you're saying is it doesn't even matter if we're the chosen race that we're going to be all judged the same. Uh, i got a problem with that. Um, some of you, uh, let's say the, you high-roaders here, that you're maybe Gentile high-roaders, you're going to be saying, wait, so that's not fair. Are you telling me that God's going to judge us? We didn't even have the Bible. We didn't even have the law of God. And you're going to judge us the same way as the Jewish people? And they had the Bible and God spelled it out what was expected of him? That doesn't seem fair. And so Paul is going to address real quickly these two concerns and two questions and objections in verse 12. He says, here's how it works. All who sin apart from the law, in other words, Gentiles, you don't have the Bible. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. In other words, they're not going to be judged based on the law. If you grow up in a non-Christian home and you've never had any, you don't know anything about God, you're not going to be judged the same way, by the same standard. How will you be judged? We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, He says, verse 12, and all who sin up under the law, in other words, Jewish people, you're under the law, uh, you'll be judged by the law. So God will judge you by what you know, by the law, but not the Gentiles. Verse 13, because Jews, uh, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. Doesn't matter if you've gone to Sabbath school every day of your life, you know the Bible inside out. It's not hearing the law that makes you right with God. He says, it's those who obey the law will be declared righteous. See, it's all about performance. Verse 14, now he talks about this whole Gentile issue, the fairness issue. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, so they don't have the written Old Testament law, they do by nature, 
might want to underline that, by nature, things required by the law. Here's what he's going to be saying. Here he's saying is that as human beings created in the image of God, that every one of us, regardless of our spiritual upbringing or background, that God has kind of put a moral compass inside of our life, an intuitive moral compass, a sense of right and wrong. And so if you grow up without any spiritual upbringing, no exposure to the Bible, God is not going to hold you accountable for that. He's going to deal with you on this internal moral compass that you have, that we all have. And that's how he's going to to judge you. How did you respond to that internal compass? And so in verse uh, uh, 14, indeed when Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature things required of the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the written law. Since they show that the requirements of the written law, like the Old Testament, they're written on their hearts. They have this internal, intuitive sense of right and wrong. Now, it's not as detailed as, say, the Bible would be, but it's a general sense of right and wrong. And so it's, um, verse 15, since they show that um, the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing and now even defending them. Now, we've all known this, Right? You're in a, a situation, you have to make a decision, and it's right and wrong. If you make the right one, your conscience says, good job. If you say the wrong one, your conscience what are you thinking? And he says, this is really going to kick into high gear, especially when Jesus comes back. He says, what's going to happen at the end of time is every one of us is going to go one-on-one in Jesus. And he's going to replay our life and all the secrets of our heart. There's going to be no hiding. Everything's going to be laid out there. And he says, and when that happens that our conscience is going to be kicking in at points. And see, I did, right, I did the right thing right there. Other times, like, oh, I really blew it right there, you see. And so he says in verse 16, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. By the way, remember in the, well, early on, I talked about how when Paul uses the word gospel, he doesn't just mean the simple plan of salvation. He means his whole message. Remember that? Here's a great example of that. Uh, he's talking about the judgment that's coming and how God will reveal the secrets of our hearts. He says, as my gospel declares, my message uh, declares. Okay? So that's the passage. Now, here's what we want to do. Um, we, we've kind of seen the flow of thought, right? So chapter one, he brings his indictment against you wild kids over here. Chapter two, he brings his indictment against you moral high roaders. And his basic charge is, hey, you may talk a good game, but you don't do a good game. And all God cares about is performance. Just do it. And so you haven't done it, and so you're in trouble. Guess what? You're in trouble. Guess what? You're in trouble, right? Next time, you're going to be in trouble. But today, you're still sitting at the back of the room listening in to his teaching and just wondering, where is he going with all this? What about us? We're the special kids. We're the kids of the principal. Don't we get a break? And so you still have hope for yourself, but I will dash it pretty soon. All right. So, so there's, there's, there's a story, okay? So remember, we're in a court case, right? And Paul is bringing up witness after witness saying, man, you're in trouble, you're in trouble, and we're moving towards chapter three when he's bringing his big verdict against the race, and then we're gonna see what God did once that verdict of guilty as charged, and we were without hope, and we were doomed, what God does to address that situation. So that's where we're going. Now, but here's what I wanna do. I wanna get real practical today, and I wanna talk about what are the, the principles that flow out of this passage for our lives. Could stop and think about it. If you are a Christ follower today, if you've made that decision to follow Jesus in your life, then by definition, in a sense, you are on the high road, aren't you? 
You, you've chosen to leave the old life, the low road behind. You've chosen to follow Jesus, to live life at a whole new level and a whole new way, the way life is supposed to be lived. So by definition, you're following Jesus on the high road, which is a good thing. However, there's, there's certain inherent dangers that happen to anyone who's on the high road. Whether you're uh, a pagan philosopher, whether you're uh, a, a re religious person, whether you're a Christ follower, if you're on the high road, there's always some inherent dangers. And we want to talk about them today because this happens to Christians all the time and knocks us off the high road and, and really messes up our life. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called The Twin Dangers of the High Road. And so let's, uh, let's jump in and <laughs> talk about that. Number one, here's the first danger. The twin dangers are pride and pretending. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you're in danger spiritually from the high road that you're treading. And the twin dangers that we always have to be on guard against are pride and pretending. Pride, pr pretending to be something that we're not, right, that leads to um, our, our pretending, which pretends, uh, we're pretending something we're not, and then pride, which is, that comes from that pretending. And it's always a big danger. And here's how it tends to work. Let's say that you become a Christian today. You're a brand new Christian. When you first become a Christian, you're very aware of your shortcomings, right? Life is not working out. You've rebelled against God. You need God in your life. You ask him to forgive. There's, you, know, you don't become a Christian by pride. Here, God, I am. You're lucky to have me, right? So, so we start off with an appropriate level of humility, you know, we're fallen, we've messed up, we need you to forgive us, right? And, and at that point, we don't, you, you usually don't know the Bible very well, we don't know anything, and so we're a newbie. And so we're like flipping around, we can't find anything in our Bibles, we feel kind of silly, kind of stupid at times. But it's real exciting because God's moving, he's changing us, and, and it's really cool. In fact, man, he starts putting our life together. And things start coming together in our life. And maybe we, we start doing better at, on, on our job at work because we have a better work ethic now. And our relationships start doing, working out better because we're, we're learning how to do it the right way. And uh, we've given up maybe some of our bad things that we were involved in the low road. And so life's coming together. And so we start looking pretty good, right? So we, we, life's starting to look good. And at this point, there's a huge temptation. Because before we had nothing to lose by being honest. We had nothing going for us, really you know, in a sense of spiritual merits or whatever. But now we've got, man, we've, got, we've learned our spiritual gifts. We're serving, we're giving, we're making a difference. God's healing our life. And now we've got something to protect, don't we? And so what happens is we often start off humble and honest, but what happens over time is we start like being tempted to make the mistake of the high road, which is to start pretending we're better than we are. And here's the temptation is that we start, now we've left the old things. We're not sleeping around anymore. We're not getting drunk anymore. We're not doing some of those things. And so it's really tempting to start measuring our maturity by those things. And at the same time, we're ignoring the sins of our hearts. We're, we've got the envy. We've got the greed. We've got the stuff going on. But we're just kind of ignoring that because it's on the inside. It's not as obvious. And so very, uh, very subtly, we begin to fall into these dangers of pretending and then pretending that leads to pride. I want to show you this in the New Testament. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the left to Matthew chapter 23. This is exactly what happened to the religious leaders, the spiritual leaders of Jesus' day. You know, when we talk about Pharisees, 
We often think of it as a negative term, but did you know that when the Pharisees first started, they were a great group of people. They were people who loved God. They were people who loved his word. They wanted to be faithful to God. And so, but over time, the movement went south. And the reason the movement went south is because they fell prey to these two dangers of pride and pretending. And so in chapter 23, um, Jesus calls them on this. So if you look, start at verse 1, chapter 23 and verse uh, 1. So, um, verse 1, Jesus says to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they're the teachers of the nation. They're teaching the word of God. Uh, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. In other words, when they're teaching from the word, take it seriously. He says, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. So what he's saying is that the spiritual leaders of his day were the high roaders. They're the high roaders of chapter 2 of Romans. They're condemning others. They're doing the same things, okay? And then if you skip down to verse 23, he's uh, this long kind of rip-on section on the hypocrites, Pharisees. Verse 23, <coughs> he's always so subtle. Uh, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, a mint and dill and cumin. Now, here's the thing. Um, not only were they tithing, they, they took the Bible so seriously, not only were they tithing off of their income, they were tithing off of their herb gardens. Okay? Now this is serious. <laughs> when it comes to the offering today, don't want any mint, dill, nothing. We don't need that. All right, Checks, cash, credit cards, um, no mint or dill. <clears throat> but this is what they were doing. And so they, they were taking the Bible very seriously. But look what else they were doing. But they have neglected the more important matters of the law. Did you know that certain things in the Bible are more important? Interesting. Certain matters are more important. And the more important things like justice, like really caring that the, the poor would get a fair deal. Mercy, like their compassion towards people who are far from God. Uh, faithfulness. And he says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And he says, I'm, I'm really excited. You're, you're tithing. That's great. You should be doing that. He says, but you've neglected the more important things kind of these sins of the heart kinds of issues, right? You blind cabal. <laughs> what did I just say? <laughs> did I say blind cowboys? No. Yeah. You blind camels. Yeah. <laughs> Great, Mike. You blind camels. Um, you've uh, strained out a gnat, but you swallow a camel, okay? Now, this is, this is the mark of the spiritual high road. You so fo- focus on certain sins, you become very selective in how you measure your maturity. So you're, you're like focusing on that gnat over here, man. This is the mark of spirituality, and you're swallowing a camel. So he says in verse 25, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but, you decide, but the inside's full of greed and self-indulgence. Now, see this two kinds of sins here? So the Pharisee that started the day with, thank God I don't cheat on my wife, thank God I don't, uh, I, I've never robbed anyone. That's good. We shouldn't cheat on our wife. We shouldn't rob. That's good. But, he says, inside, there's these sins of the heart, greed, self-indulgence. I always have to have more, and everything I have is about me. I'm never going to give the poor. I'm never going to help the weak, you see. And says, you're ignoring, you see. So what we do is, this is the mark of the high road. We define spirituality in a very narrow way. 
which allows us to feel good about ourselves and look down on others, while in reality, we're, we're lying to ourselves and God and pretending about who we really are. We're not being honest. And so um, he goes on uh, in 27, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside. The inside are full of dead man's bones, everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, the bottom line is, I want you to catch this, as Christ followers here today, this is a huge temptation for us as Christ followers. And if you don't believe me, look at churches all across this land that in their communities, they are thought of as being self-righteous and hypocritical and judgmental and it happens all the time. And how does it happen? Because we make a decision to follow Jesus on the high road, but we give in to the dangers of pretending, which leads to the result of pride. I'm better than you. I'm, does this make sense? Okay, so let's talk now about the guardrails. So if we're on the high road, and these are the two dangers, the twin dangers. They go together because they're so closely aligned. What are the twin guardrails at the side of the high road that keep us on track? Okay, so the twin guardrails are honesty and authenticity. This is what will protect us as Christ followers from making these mistakes, honesty and authenticity. In other words, if you want to... If you want to follow Jesus and you want to grow and you don't want to become one of these high road people that are looking down their nose and, okay, how, you say, Mike, how do I avoid this danger? I see it. You've described it. I get it. I see it all around me. I don't want that to happen in my life. How can I make sure I don't fall into these dangers? I can tell you, honest, I can just tell you straight out. You need to develop a commitment to radical honesty and authenticity in your life that you need to develop a commitment that you're going to be radically honest with God about three areas of your life. I'm going to give them to you. Your thoughts, your feelings, and your motives. And this is not as easy to do as you might think. Uh, let, let me give an example. Like, uh, like I'm your pastor, right? Man, is it the glasses? Is that what it is? You don't like them? Yeah, yeah. Do it again. Okay, so I'm your pastor, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, good, good. All right, great, great. And I'm honored, and I'm honored, even though I took two asks. You know, if you have to ask someone twice, do they love you? I'm not sure. But anyway, <laughs> but you sure you don't love me? Oh, no, we love you. Oh, great. Okay. So, um, okay, so I'm, I'm your pastor. I'm one of your spiritual leaders here. I'm not the only one. One of them, okay? One of your spiritual leaders. Okay, now, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Whether you answer them or not is up to you. But I'm telling you, if you start answering at the beginning, it might get dangerous for you later on. All right. So, just a little warning. So, okay, so I'm your pastor. I'm one of your spiritual leaders. So, let me ask you. Am I the only one in this room that struggles with greed in my life? Yeah. Okay. Am I the only one in this room that struggles with materialism in my life? Am I the only one in this room? And I'm making up real stuff. Okay, this is not, I'm not just like, you know, I'm here on the other. Am I the only one in this room that often cares more about what other people think of me than Jesus thinks of me? And I'm very ashamed of that. Okay. 
Am I the only one who, in this room, who struggles with sexual temptation at times? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I'm telling you, woo, we are on. We are on. I don't know who you are, but we're out for coffee afterwards. I'm telling you. <laughs> the last service I said that, I got real quiet. <laughs> I said, I warned you. I warned you. Am I the only one who struggles with fear at times? Am I the only one who struggles with uh, anger or bitterness at times? Okay. Hey, we're all in this together, aren't we? We are all fallen, aren't we? And the only way we get better is if Jesus supernaturally changes us from the inside out, right? Okay, that's what Paul wants us to get. And once we get that, and once we understand, as we're going to be learning in Romans, that our relationship with God is no longer based on our performance, it frees us up to be radically honest. And it starts with being honest with yourself. When you're afraid, when you're angry, when you're defensive, when you're proud, when you have temptation, when you have lust, when, when these things happen... Can you go into God's presence and be absolutely honest about that? Let me tell you, it is the safeguard against pride and pretending. Because it's as we embrace the truth about ourselves that God's able to heal us. You know, <clears throat> if you've been a Christian a while, you know this, that New Testament's big on confession of sin, right? We confess our sins. Um, but have you ever asked yourself why that's so important to God. Like, why is it so important to God that we confess our sins? Ever wonder about that? Let me give you a hot tip. It's not because he doesn't know. <laughs> hey, God, it's Mike again. I uh, hate to say this, but uh, I've been struggling with some envy. Really? <laughs> Never saw that coming. I know these other areas of your life, but really, how long have you been feeling this way? Well, I don't know, but your word says to confess it. Well, I'm glad you did. It's good for me to know. No, no. It's like, he knows, right? Catch this. Confession has nothing to do with God. Confession is about you. Because I don't care who your doctor is or how good they are. If you don't tell them your symptoms, they can't help you. And so, can you imagine going to the doctor? You're like, Hey, Doc. He goes, what's the problem? Well, that's for you to figure out. <laughs> what are you talking about? Hey, you've been to school for 18 years, and you're the specialist. I heard you're the best, and I figure I'm paying you this much money. I shouldn't have to tell you. You just tell me what the solution is. You look at me like I'm crazy. Hey, it's no accident when Jesus came and said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick, Right? And until we're honest with God about our deepest thoughts and feelings and emotions, what's going on? He can't help us. He can't heal us. But what happens when we are honest? I'll tell you what happens. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. And catch this not just to forgive us our sins, we usually stop there, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you want to be cleansed, you have to come clean, you see? And that's why it's so important. So confession's about coming into the light and living a relationship with God. We're in the light. And guess what? The good news is because we're not based, our relationship's no longer based on performance, but on what Christ did, 
we're free to do that. There's absolute freedom. Now, um, so let me ask you a couple questions here <laughs> as we begin to wrap this thing up. Um, well, let me, let me, I forgot one thing I want to do first. Okay, so Paul models this. Like every week, I start the same way for the, for the new, new people. Here's the story of the way. We're looking at the life and teaching the Apostle Paul, and we start in Romans, we launch off into other areas. Okay, let's do that. Let's launch off into other areas. Here's a great example where the Apostle Paul just models this so well for us. Um, so he's in uh, Macedonia. He's, he's, uh, he's in the area of Macedonia. He's having a lot of conflict with the church at Corinth. He's really worried. They're going off the deep end. And he's getting all kinds of persecutions. He's going through a tough time in his life. And so he writes to them this letter, 2 Corinthians. And uh, this week in your life groups, you're going to be studying this passage in a couple different translations I put for you. But I want you to look at it in a third translation here. It's there in your note sheet. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 7, verse 5 and 6. So Paul says, even when we came into Macedonia, which is an area in Greece, um, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Going through tough times, there's conflicts without. Now underline next thing, what's within? Conflicts without, fears within. Underline that. But God who comforts the what? Depressed, underline that. He comforted us by the coming of Titus. And here's what I want you to catch. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's opening up and honestly sharing with his church that's questioning his apostleship that he has recently gone through a tough time where he was full of fear and going through a major depression. Did you get that? This is the Apostle Paul. Uh, wait a second. Are you serious, Paul? You're an apostle. You said rejoice in the Lord always. Would you get with the program, please? <laughs> Paul, you said my God shall supply all your needs through his riches and glory. Really? Can you just get on with it? Paul, you said give thanks in every situation for this is the will of Christ. You're not living up to your own motto. Yeah. But the apostle Paul, this mentor that we're sitting under in this series, He's telling us, I went through a tough time. I was full of fear, and I was depressed. And then how did God get me out of this? Did, he get, did God say, okay, I want you to go and pray and fast for 40 days? No, he sent his good friend Titus with good news about the messed up church in Corinth that they're finally getting their act together. That's how God got him out of his depression. Now, have you ever been going through a time when you're discouraged and you're depressed and someone brings you good news and it gets you out of it? How, how many of you have ever, ever been there? Okay. Okay, so we understand that. It's being human. But we're surprised the Apostle Paul would go through an experience like that. Aren't you glad that he's honest and real and says this is the way life works? You see? Okay, so here, here's what I'm saying. is like this is the kind of life I want to live. I, I want to live a life that's honest and real and authentic before God and people. Um, I want to be part of a church where it's safe to be honest and real. Don't you? Don't you think that's what the world's looking for? A place of people who love one another and it's okay to be real and honest. And when you're up, you're up. And when you're down, you're down. And when you're in the image, and you can share. And when Jesus is very close to you and you're sensing his presence and your power, you can share that in your life group. And when you're depressed and you don't know what to do because that teenage kids are driving you crazy and you don't know what's gonna happen, you can share that. And someone's not going to pat you on the back, give you a verse, and say, get back to me in a week. That it's okay to be in a dark place. Not because we're going to stay there, but because the way we get out of it is by being honest about it. Right? So let me end up with just a couple questions for you. Okay? 
Uh, question number one is, in your personal life, are you learning, are you on a journey to become radically honest with God about your feelings, your thoughts, and your motives? Or have you fallen into the trap of subtly pretending, you're kind of pretending that these certain things aren't happening in your life? Second question, are you developing some close friendships with some trusted friends in your life who are Christ followers, maybe some spiritual mentors, were you really able to be honest in increasing measure to share the truth about yourself? Is that, are, are those two things, are you getting honest with yourself and God, are you growing? This is your safeguard. These are the guardrails that will keep you on track, right? Let me ask you another question. If you're in a life group and Jesus sends someone to your life group, is it a safe place for Jesus to send that person? Is it a safe place? For example, let's say three weeks ago, uh, a man comes to Rocky Peak, and he's got a really troubled past. He's a, he's a low rotor, there's no question. Done a lot of bad things in his life. And uh, he's just checking out Jesus. And he comes to your group, and in your group, while you're discussing, he says, you know, I'm not sure I really buy this. This whole thing that Mike said, and this whole thing that Jesus, I'm not sure I buy this. I'm not sure I hold buy this whole Christianity thing. I mean, I like a lot of it, but there's just a, is it safe for him to say that? Or is he going to get a lecture? Kind of snap up, or shape up, snap it up, let's get with it here. That's wrong. We don't believe like that around here. You see? Are, are we a place that creates safety for people to be in process? You see? With what they're going through. What about their, their past? I mean, they, they've got just a really checkered past. Is, is your group, if, if Jesus sent them to your group, would your group be a, a safe place for them to admit what they've done? Or would they find that the air gets a little bit cold in your group? That someone quickly changes the subject, moves on. Everyone gets a little stiff in their chair as they begin to share about maybe their drug addiction or their sexual morality. Or they share that, wow, that sermon last week is good. You know, I've struggled with same-sex attraction in my, my life. And, and does everyone just get stiff? You see, kind of the nonverbals is we don't talk about things like that here. If someone comes in your group and they're just, they're, they've been in the group a long time and they begin to talk to you about some depression or some fear, how do we respond to that? You see, I believe that, that God wants to create a place, a community where we can be honest and real and authentic. Not because we want to stay messed up, but because we want to get healed. And the path to healing is the path of honesty and authenticity. Confess your sins to one another, James says, so that you may be healed, right? Okay, so the day we started this, uh, this message with the story of Jesus, that Jesus told about the two men at the temple, they're on uh, two different paths. One man, his whole life has been on the low road. One man, his whole life has been on the, on the high road. And Jesus ends the story that day with this. He says, you know what? Those two men said one went home that day with a real relationship with God, right with God, and one didn't. And guess what? The one who went home with a relationship with God wasn't the high rotor. It was the low rotor. And the reason was he was the one 
who is willing to be radically honest with God about his life. You see, first step to spiritual growth is always to step a radical commitment to honesty and truth about our thoughts, our feelings, and emotions. It's there God meets us. It's there God heals us. Let me tell you something. If you want to kill your spiritual life, all you have to do is start pretending. And if you want your spiritual life to come alive, all you have to do is start being radically honest. And it's there God will meet us in the light and change and transform and heal us. Because as his word says, that he is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness of denial, that we have no relationship. Let's pray. Father, we are excited to be in this journey as a church, learning how to walk with you in honesty, authenticity, reality. God, we don't want to fall into the traps of pride or pretending. We want to embrace the truth about ourselves, even when it's painful, invite you into that truth, and you can heal and lead and guide and lead us out. God, we pray that you'd give us that grace to grow as a church in this area, in our lives, and you give us the freedom to know that we can be, bring the truth about ourselves to you because our relationship is no longer based on performance. It's based on gift and grace and that we stand in grace. It's, it's the room we now live in. And therefore, it's safe to come before you and share the deepest parts of our heart. It's because there you will meet us and heal us. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we bring-